Omanjika Harimai and come with purpose to this Voices of Regen uh, podcast kicking off 2022 after what's been quite an incredible uh, 2021. As Claire, who's joining me now, we started off on this uh, journey to explore in an unapologetically bold way how this experience of regeneration, this culture of regeneration was starting to influence in particular the business community and creating space for conversations between leaders in Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia and often um, creating space and working collaboration with First Peoples uh, in each country. And it's taking on uh, quite a journey. And I guess as we look out to the year ahead, uh, there's some trends that we thought we might like to unpack together and I guess forecast how we think it might uh, unfold, knowing that we are living in a time of great uncertainty. Uh, but there are some patterns and some things that we feel like uh, are building momentum and are even starting to mainstream. So together, Claire and I are going to uh, unpack, unpack those in this short conversation. Before we do that, we're always going to take that moment to acknowledge Pavanata, Papa Tuanuku, Mother Earth, um, and the places where each of us work, but also all of the listeners where you're coming from and uh, also the first peoples that are connected to those places and the diverse pathways of migration that make up our, uh, our multicultural community today. So, Claire, I'm going to pass straight to you. What are those top three trends that you're looking at to 2022 with and uh, yeah, let's start to explore them together. Yeah, kia ora, Matt. Um, firstly, apologies for any background noises. Um, some construction happening next door, is actually, which is actually quite fitting for um, the trends that I'm seeing coming up in 2022 um, because we're seeing a lot of change, particularly in the construction sector. Um, and the changes happening in Aotearoa are really affecting construction in particular. Um, so the big thing that we're seeing changing at the moment is um, the rise of social procurement. So there's a lot of um, government policy that's encouraging social procurement. And as I said, that's having huge impacts on the construction sector. And it's also having ripple effects for any other organizations that want to work with government. Um, the second thing that's happening kind of as a result of that push towards social procurement is that more organizations are incorporating impact into the way that they work. Um, so ranging from businesses um, to you know, government departments to charities and social enterprises who've traditionally been the leaders in that, we're seeing you know, the broader business community get on board with doing impactful stuff, which is brilliant. Um, and then as those organizations are starting to incorporate impact into, into the way that they, they're working, they're encountering these challenges of intersectionality. And I'll talk about that in a bit more detail soon. Um, but I thought what I might do is just kind of talk through each of those three points in a bit more detail. Um, and, and we can have a bit of a korero about what that might mean um, for you know, New Zealand um, and also perhaps any other similar trends that we're seeing across the ditch in Australia. Um, so firstly, starting with social procurement, um, in Aotearoa for a number of years, government has been shifting um, towards outcomes-based funding, which essentially means, you know, rather than funding its contractors to um, deliver widgets um, or to count the number of things that it does, 
it really wants to fund outcomes. So it wants to invest in things that create positive change. And um, one big opportunity for the government to fund outcomes is using social procurement. So what's happened in Aotearoa is that in 2018, they launched something called the Broader Outcomes Framework, um, which is essentially baking in positive outcomes to government contracts. So that means that they're including things called non-price attributes um, when they're weighing up which contractors to go for. So rather than just saying, we're going to pick the supplier who can you know, give us the cheapest price, um, they're saying we want, we're going to pick suppliers who can give us a good price and also can deliver these positive outcomes. Um, I know there are similar things happening, um, particularly in Victoria with the Victorian government's social procurement framework. Um, so we're seeing stuff like that happening here too, which is really brilliant. And at the moment, um, given that this framework is only a few years old, the government's really focusing on a few core areas, um, predominantly relating to improving working conditions, um, you know, supporting local businesses, and also reducing waste and emissions. So essentially what this means is that to keep winning work with government, suppliers need to demonstrate that they're creating positive impact through their work, particularly in those impact areas that government's keen on progressing. Um, and so as a result of that, more and more organisations um, that, that work with government are taking action to do things like measure their impact and also create strategies to grow their impact. So this is pretty cool because it means that government has um, put itself in a position where it can influence positive change throughout its whole supply chain. So from the contractors or suppliers who work directly with government to the subcontractors that work under them, and then all through their supply chain, all of these organizations are needing to prove that they're creating positive impact in order to keep winning the work that they want to. Um, so that's really exciting because it's creating these, um, you know, beautiful ripple effects through society where, you know, doing good and doing business is becoming mainstream. Something to pick up on there, Claire, it seems to be that this transparency, uh, transparency of information and accountability and then increasing skills around measurement as well. It seems like everyone's needing to up their game in this space. And it's interesting that the government is, because it, you know, often government processes are quite systematic. And so it is probably one of those things that they can they can lead and, and guide organisations on. But um, no doubt that means that organisations are having to upskill in-house on what their capabilities are to, to deliver that as well, because traditionally a lot of, you know, accounting is purely financial. So it means that there's probably new jobs and, and pathways created for uh, for professionals that have that purpose uh, drive as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, particularly in the work that we're doing with at Arkina, um, which is where I work, we're seeing, you know, we're working with lots of our clients to help them set up good impact measurement. Often they go into that process feeling pretty intimidated and thinking that it's going to be really hard. Um, whereas, you know, in reality, it's really about finding a few really good, meaningful things to measure. Um, and then as a result of that, um, often they realize that, as you said, Matt, they'll need to invest more money and more resources and more time into measuring impact. And it's not just a nice to have. It's not something that's related to corporate responsibility anymore. It's a really core commercial thing that they need to do um, because in order to keep winning work, they need to be measuring their impact.
Cool. Um, so that kind of leads me on to my next point with, um, you know, more organisations, particularly in government, when interacting with government, needing to demonstrate their impact. Um, we're seeing it become much more mainstream for organisations to incorporate impact into their business models. Um, so I talked before about how government's driving this, but we're also seeing changes in you know, social norms and um, what society is expecting from the business community. So you know, the conversation around the climate crisis, the conversation around inequality, um, those in particular are becoming really loud in New Zealand and really prominent. Um, which is accelerating trends like responsible consumerism, um, impact investing, and also social procurement, like I talked about before. So this means that, you know, to meet the demands of their stakeholders, whether they be, um, you know, buyers or customers or investors or funders, more organizations need to be incorporating impact into the way that they work. So that means that impact is for everyone, um, not just purpose-led organizations like charities and social enterprises. So you know, particularly in the business community, as I said, particularly in the construction sector, we're seeing a lot of um, a really big shift to organizations thinking about impact as being not just a nice to have, it's not just about corporate responsibility, it's a core part of their strategy. So there's all sorts of changes happening in business models and um, strategic plans and all that kind of thing to put impact at the heart of what organizations do and how they work. And probably something to pick up on there is that, well, first thing that comes to mind is uh, while we often talk about regenerative business uh, or regeneration, the language that that people use in different places is quite different. So impact um, is, is one of those phrases that's probably a little bit more uh, mainstream. And I think what's interesting is impact is that, as you're saying, the shift of strategy and business models means that instead of organizations and businesses looking to create less harm, they're actually looking at how they can create those net benefits and those positive impacts. And so that actually starts to shift the whole psychology of, uh, of business and align it with that, that deeper purpose. But as always, kind of the language around it is important. And I think that necessary step um, to move beyond even that sustainability mindset where you're in, harm minimization into okay now how do we create these positive benefits um i think it's super liberating but i also think it's it's a necessary shift that that we have to make um because it just frees up so much potential uh and it's a trap when you feel like you can only you know do less harm it's really inhibiting and uh we need we need business models we need impact models that that um, leave places better than, than what we found them. Totally. And from a strategic plan perspective, that's something we find really interesting too, because, you know, if you look at the strategic plan of all sorts of businesses, especially in the corporate sector, you know, how many of them have a, have a vision statement that says, oh, we want to make the world a little bit less rubbish. Um, no one, no one has a vision statement like that. You know, you see vision statements that are all about increasing prosperity and creating a positive impact and, you know, making the future better for the next generation. Um, and so the thing that's really exciting about applying this regenerative lens to the way that businesses think about their strategies and their business models is it actually helps them to achieve the vision that they already have 
Whereas, you know, previously their vision might have felt a little bit more tokenistic because they've got this big, bold vision for a better world, but the actions that they're taking aren't leading them to that, that better world. It's sort of leading them to a world that's much the same um, with a bit of tinkering around the edges to perhaps try and do less harm. So this idea of regeneration and positive impact is really exciting for lots of organizations that we're working with because it gives them the ability to actually achieve their vision where in the past it wasn't possible at all. And that probably leads me really nicely to the final point that I had to share today, um, which is the challenges that organizations face when they start pursuing their big, bold vision. Um, so as we know, the world is a complex place and we're facing a lot of really complex challenges and there's a lot of um, you know, potential to be realized as we address those challenges. And what comes up there is this concept of intersectionality, which is that you know, all sorts of... Um, social environmental challenges are interlinked with one another and you can't just solve one at once and then move on to solve the next challenge what happens is that when we apply a really regenerative mindset to things and we um you know try to make a real difference then we need to be addressing lots of different impact areas at the same time so a really good example addressing the climate crisis can't be done unless you're doing things like addressing inequality and poverty at the same time and a whole bunch of other stuff alongside that and so as more and more businesses are shifting into this um, mindset of creating positive impact, they're realizing, oh my gosh, there's this thing called intersectionality and how on earth do we grapple with that? And so that's a really big challenge. And I think it also an exciting opportunity facing particularly the business sector at the moment. Um, you know, the, the first thing that comes up is understanding what this concept of intersectionality is and getting their heads around, you know, where they're operating, where they want to create impact, what other impact areas are related to that and, and the effects that their work has on those broad spectrum of, um, of, of impact areas that they're working towards. Then the next step once they've done that is to figure out where they can focus. So to say, you know, our goal is to um, address the climate crisis. And then, you know, as they're working towards that goal, recognizing all of the other actions they need to take in order to achieve that big picture goal and, you know, the other impact areas that they need to um, be touching on as well at the same time. And then finally is the hard question of saying, well, what don't we do? Um, because you can't be everything to everyone. It's really easy to say we want to do everything all at the same time. But in reality, time and resources are finite, meaning that organizations can't do everything. So it's about really finding, you know, those pinpointed um, places to focus or pinpointed impact areas to focus on and then figuring out um, how you can influence positively the other impact areas that relate to it as well. And that's often where partnership comes into play. So organizations saying we're going to focus on this particular area because it's what we're great at and we're going to partner with this other organization who's going to um, influence a different area in a way that complements our work so that we can all work together to make the world a better place at the same time. Yeah, look, I think the intersectionality conversations are a super interesting one. You know, there's so many ways that we can look at it. We can talk about um, cross-sector, you know, public, private, not-for-profit type relationships. We can talk about uh, the, the kind of working across disciplines. We can talk about... Um, you know, Māori and Pākehā or um, kind of Western and First Nations knowledge. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that probably in the Western world, what we've done is we've been really great at 
putting things in silos and creating those separations so that things sit in neat bundles, which they obviously don't because when, when we end up with the symptoms of that being uh, when, when we've kind of had that super mechanistic, sim simple lens, we forget the interdependencies and the interconnections and this relates to that and that. And so when things are out of balance, we can kind of see it in reflected in other things. So when, for instance, we are addressing climate uh, or, you know, areas of work with natural capital, ecosystem restoration, biodiversity and so on, what we tend to do is just put that in the nature and the environment sphere. We don't look at the intersection with community and culture and, and specifically like if we're looking at projects that regeneration projects is involved in, um, you know, it's, it's this phrase of like ecological and cultural regeneration need to happen in sync and harmony. And the two kind of drive each other. And it's, the, it's almost the economic and knowledge exchange that facilitates that cycle and out of that whole cycle, you get these ripple effects that create uh, a positive, you know, community and not just for people, but for all, all life. But I think the, the catch is, is that instead of separating nature and culture, we actually see them as being connected because, you know, it's, it comes down to our lifestyle habits and decisions and, and these things that are sitting underneath it. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's a tricky one because I think what intersectionality also brings into conversation is meaning that we actually start projects, start processes differently. It's not like you start halfway, you know, and halfway into the project, you're like, okay, let's let's be intersectional. Let's let's speak to someone that's got a different perspective to us and let's try and form a partnership. That actually starts in the beginning. So it, it's really tricky because it means the first step you you change how you approach um and i think that it's also this tension that we have around an impulse to want to change and address these big grand challenges quickly we can't necessarily change the outcomes quickly we can't solve climate change quickly but we can be quick relatively to change the way that we work and think and then the and then that then the outcomes come later so it's like swift to change the way we think and and act but knowing that the benefits will come in the, the longer term uh, but yeah so much so much power and and you had experience in Aotearoa and here in in Melbourne as well so you can see how it's happening in both places that's so interesting, Matt. That just brings to mind a conversation I had with a friend the other day um, who works in finance and has a really logical, hyperlogical view of the world. Um, you won't be surprised to know that they're an engineer by background. And we were talking about um, reducing Aotearoa's emissions. And this friend was saying, let's not worry about agriculture for now. You know, the quick win is to just switch all the cars to EVs. And that seemed really logical and you can understand how they'd reached that conclusion. And um, I ended up having a discussion with this friend and saying, you know, similar to what, what you said, Matt, it's about shifting your mind, your, your mindset and realizing that all of these challenges are interconnected and we can't just, you know, switch to EVs overnight and expect that everything will be fine. 
you know, sure, um, if all of a sudden tomorrow everybody were to, were to be driving EVs, that would cut our emissions a lot, but there would be a whole bunch of other, you know, negative effects of that. For example, what do we do with the rest of these cars? And all the while, um, New Zealand's agriculture emissions are still, you know, a really major contributor. Um, and we're also still facing all of these challenges around, you know, biodiversity loss, land use changes, soil degradation, all of these things. Um, so, you know, understanding the correlation between a whole bunch of, um, of different factors and how we can help those factors to work together um, in a complementary way is so important to actually solving the big challenges that we're after. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and look, I think if you look at the, you know, your three themes there, that social procurement, um, the way of different organisations incorporating impact into their approaches and that intersectionality. You can see, you know, just in that they're, they're all connected and they're almost, uh, it's not a linear relationship, it's more like a circular relationship in the way that they feed into each other. And I think that's a, such a classic example of through conversations like these, we can create new patterns of thought and new habits within our within our minds. And and look for for people that are that have probably been on this journey, maybe with some foundations of sustainability, it may be easier. It also may not be. It also might be people that have had that education more of profit driven or or traditional um, business approaches that. Uh, they can may have the opportunity to just leapfrog sustainability and go straight to regeneration because in some ways it's practical. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think there's some really beautiful themes that you've drawn out there. Yeah, awesome. Matt, I might hand to you, I'd love to hear your themes and, and, and your predictions for 2022. Yeah, look, and I, I think it, it, it just carries on and, and complements weaves together with a lot of what you were sharing. Probably the top three for me is this concept of regen literacy and capability building. So it's that new, new knowledge, new ways of seeing that's required that gives us a grounding and starting point for the change. Uh, the second one is around place-based impact. What tends to happen with the current economic paradigm is that we make products as if there is no place or context. We, it's just this, you know, we look at numbers on a spreadsheet, we're going to make this part and this part through this process, and then we're going to sell it. We don't really factor in place and the connections to, to people and culture and, and biology and bi, you know, biological regions, bioregions. So I think place-based impact is something that we need to really lean into and that's going to continue to grow. And then the other one is this, oh, I know it's, it's really tricky actually to describe it. My, my notes say post-lockdown narrative. It's like, well, who, who knows what, what that, when or what that will be. But I, I guess what I'm getting at there is the experience of going through COVID-19, the lockdowns, the localization, and the shift of values that's happened at the kind of family, household, you know, business team level, organizational level. I feel like that's 
it's wanting to express itself but because we're still in the the transition of negotiating what's next and we've still got that asterisk that says oh well who exactly knows what happens in 2022 um and beyond um we're not really brave enough to to say it but it feels like there is a shift happening so i want to i want to dive into that a little bit more too awesome matt um going back to your first point I'd really love to hear more about, you know, what, what you're seeing in terms of region literacy and capability building and, and what 2022 holds for that. Okay, so I guess when I talk about region literacy and sometimes sometimes the language that we have doesn't always serve the purpose of, of the time that we're in. So I guess part of that for me is connected to ecological literacy, eco-literacy. So it's around... How do we understand that everything is interdependent and interconnected? And often that's the relationship between um, all living things, plants, animals, water, soil and rivers and, and forests and all of these things, as including the interface and the interdependency with, with people um, and our roles as carers of and supporters of those, those systems. But I think region literacy for me is around, okay, how do we apply that knowledge to our, you know, to our community development, to our business development, uh, this type of thing. So I guess obviously there's things that come to mind. Regeneration Projects uses the five capitals model, which you're familiar with. So you've got this cycle effectively of natural capital, well-being capital, cultural capital, financial or that circular economy. Um, and then linking into intellectual capital. And that kind of creates this flow, you know, and it keeps on coming back around. Then you've got things like the donut economics model, which is another, uh, another classic, um, and all kinds of tools, I would say. So, um, and then I, I listen to First Nations elders and the way that they describe some of their first principles it's like, okay, so that's another model and pattern as well. And so I think we've got these tools and the knowledges that are out there, but the trick is how to make them accessible and relatable to people in their everyday working places. So things like um, when for the regeneration projects, our fire circle events, that's a really simple introductory space for uh, business leaders around the world to come and connect with elders from First Nations from Australia, from Aotearoa, from India, from um, the States, from different parts, and, and also other diverse cultures, um, because I guess that grounding in knowledge and, and wisdom means that it's kind of like the, it's like the first step, it's the starting block. And it's often where, to be honest, business leaders are really scared to, to go because it's intimidating, it's unknown. Um, so I think the power of the fire circle and other forums to create that bridge is key. And then you've got things like the Regen Roadmap, which is a short course, you know, it's seven weeks and you're kind of stepping through and unpacking in particular the five capitals, how they relate to businesses and projects. But there's so many other initiatives. So another one in Melbourne, the Masters of Business Empathy um, run by Small Giants Academy is a classic. Um, of course, in the States, you've got Regenesis Group. Uh, there's, there's some that are more industry specific relating to tourism, for instance. Um, but I think 
there's opportunity for for leaders to pioneers to go out and and start to access these but i also think the next stage is then how you get into senior management and organizations and i think we're going to need to do some pretty radical adaptation and and exploring uh, of how how we do that because um, consultancies and thought leaders they're, they're only going to be cover, going to be able to cover so much ground and so we need to distribute that knowledge and that model uh, and localize it so I think it's one that we, we really need to going to work on um, and to be honest probably value value people that have that are closer to the planet, closer to the earth, like Indigenous peoples, um, and, and give them a platform which respects their voices and knowledge in a way that we haven't done enough of before. Uh, I think that's a conscious shift. Yeah, completely, Matt. And I think a lot of what you were saying really resonates with some discussions that we've been having around our organisation um about you know what regen and re regeneration means to us something that has come up quite a lot is this idea of regeneration being a mindset um, i think traditionally particularly when we look at western ways of doing business knowledge is something that is quite transactional so it's about saying well you're the expert in this so i'll consult you and borrow some of your knowledge and apply it to this other thing over here and with regeneration, it's become, becoming more and more clear to us that it's, um, you know, that those two things are, um, you can't just transact knowledge. You need to have that deep understanding or at least, to, um, you know, be starting to grow your understanding of what regeneration is before you can start on that regeneration journey yourself. And so that helps you do things like build empathy, you know, understand others, understand different perspectives, and so that you can come into it with a really open mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we, although often we might look to, for example, Indigenous peoples as having that deeper connection and knowledge, like uh, if we go back far enough to, if we follow our own ancestry, regardless of where we've come from in the world, we'll often get to a place where our ancestors were living in a closer harmony with their, you know, their local towns, their local places and villages. And, and I think they're the, they're the values, they're the imprints that we need to reconnect with because for, for people like us that have colonial heritage where there's been that dislocation and we've kind of, well, our ancestors have brought ideas to another place and we've tried to impose them and then it's like, oh, okay, so maybe some of that knowledge doesn't really work in this context. And I think that probably bridges to this second point, that place-based impact. Um, so I think to build capability and literacy, people have to connect deeper within their own, you know, their own education, but their own ancestry and, and cultural pathways and, and it's probably understand uh, to how knowledge has been formed so you know for instance like if you even look up my my surname Sykes it kind of takes me back to northern Yorkshire and and you know I guess the naming of of Sykes is around um uh water coming through like a, a marshy um land or a like a kind of damp swamp area so it's got a connection to water so if I trace my ancestry back, then there's this association between my family heritage 
and uh, and waterways effectively. And so, okay, so what? How were they living at that point? Well, they were probably farming at that point. They were probably fishing and and gathering resources as well from that area. But how how were they doing it? Now, if I fast forward now to look what, what kind of projects I'm involved in. Water is almost involved with all of them. I mean, water connects everything, but everything from the swim, swimmable Birrung, Yarra River to hot springs, mineral springs, and so on. And so I guess by for me to look back at my ancestry and look at their water connections, and then when I'm here in what's now known as Melbourne and Victoria, and I speak to a First Nations elder who's, you know, their ancestors being connected here, connected here for millennia, it's like, okay, so from my cultural heritage this is how we saw water and this is how you see water and then when we recognize those two differences we can start to do that intersectionality and the work together but we need to know the sources before we do that so and I think connecting to creating that place-based impact so if we take the swimmable Birrungawa River project for instance the power of that is that we can lean into cool and knowledge and work with elders like Nawi, Dr. Carolyn Briggs, um, and others from other other communities, and we can we can bring in kind of Western, that kind of settler European perspective, but also other diverse migrant cultures as well. And so it's literally like three streams forming a river, like the Birrung, but the power of all of those knowledges to come together to benefit the care of that place. Yeah, I think that's so cool. And um, Matt, what you were talking about, you know, that deep connection to place, that's something that comes so comes through so strongly into our Māori and in Aotearoa, we're really seeing a strong push towards that, particularly um, when people give their mihi mihi or their introduction, they include their pepeha, um, which, you know, ref, um, which calls out, you know, this is my river, this is my mountain. And it's really, um, you know, calls on that to our Māori view that, you know, people um and and the land are interconnected and and we're one and you know we're not separate to our earth um it's not a resource to be used it's a resource that we are in relationship with and I think all of what you were talking about Matt is really resonates with that and you know as we've said many times before going back to that First Nations expertise um and that way of living is is often so core to this regenerative way of working yeah, absolutely. And look, I think that's the opportunity if I step to that third point, which is this, I'm going to call it post-lockdown narrative. I'm going to, I don't know what to call it. We could call it a decade of action. We could we could call it build back better. It's 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 lots of these things, but probably something that that is underpinning that is this idea of a power shift that's happening so probably something I think young professionals like us millennials we've been in situations probably for the last five to ten years where we're sitting around leaders often gen x's sometimes baby boomers and they have often been trained through that traditional profit-driven education and so that's created this tension because it's like you know I'll go to university and learn you know learn about how we can make the world a better place you come out and you know you step out these skills around sustainability in this kind of language and then you come into the office and you're like hey so I, I did what you said I, I, I learned about sustainability or I learned about you know these different tools of how we can improve and and you know some of the phrases is you know it's around sustainability and and now 
we've kind of tried to push and, and navigate this terrain, but we've gained all kinds of barriers and it's created this intergenerational tension. Um, now, what's happened is that some of those, I guess, eco-pioneers or leaders that have been the, carry, the carriers of this timeless knowledge have already been moving. So there's been collaboration and partnership and alignment. But in a lot of cases, there's been clashes. And so you kind of end up navigating through and compromising and navigating. But what I think starting to happen now is that now millennials are being empowered. One, they've got the knowledge and the education, but they've also got the experience of how these, these traditional model works. Then it's like, okay, so we don't have to do that anymore or we can gather some of that knowledge and let's continue to work together but we don't want to do it that way. We actually want to go down this different path. So I think we've got this breakaway moment that are, that's happening. And I feel like there's that it's, it's pretty exciting actually, because you've got young talent, purpose-driven professionals um, and, and Jen sends that are coming through the climate strikers and they're like, Oh, we are not doing, we are not going this way. And then they're just having none of this. And they're like super tech savvy and they're just all across everything. And so they're going to be super disruptive, but they don't even know that they're disruptive. It's just, it's just who they are and what their upbringing has been. So I feel like there's this breakaway moment happening. And um, I think it's just part of that natural cycle. So that those, Older generations, they've laid foundations. Maybe some of that's been useful, but I feel like there's this shift happening. And I think that COVID has helped accelerate that. So we don't fully understand it, but there is this breakaway and it is part of a natural regeneration process. Yeah, I love that, Matt. Um, that reminds me of a conversation I was having recently about mentorship and speaking with someone about, you know, thinking about getting a mentor and, and I, I was saying I would love to be mentored by someone from Gen Z um, you know there's so much knowledge and so much wisdom um, in you know older generations and at the same time I feel like Gen Z and the younger generations are bringing this whole different way of thinking because in all honesty you know the way the world has been working particularly since the industrial revolution isn't doing, um, you know, is, isn't creating the outcomes that we need to see. And so um, learning from, you know, younger people who think differently and are willing to disrupt the system, I think is such an important part of holding us accountable for creating a regenerative world. Yeah, and I think that's liberating. And, and we, I think there's something for us all to learn in that, that it's okay to step away and to be different and to, and to not, because I think that there's been this tension that we've wanted to persuade or convince or seek approval probably from some of those um, more established leaders. But I, I think that's just, I think that's passing. Um, I think more and more it's just like, well, look, cool. If that's the way you want to do things, you keep on doing that, like go your good thing. But while you're doing that, we're going to have an awesome time over here and um, and creating this future based on what we've learned from you and from others. Um, and sure, we're going to make mistakes, absolutely. Um, but we know, we know from what we're seeing that we do have to dare to do things a little bit differently and, and be willing to make mistakes and to, and to do, you know, like what we've it's kind of been our, our guiding principle of be unapologetically bold to call things out that no longer fit and sometimes... And I, I did it recently. I called an established leader out on something and, 
and they they didn't like it and and it was quite uncomfortable and but there was a part of me it was like you know what I'm I'm not I'm sorry that it I'm sorry if it came across as sharp but I'm also not sorry that I I said what I had to say because it's like if if you're in a position of influence and you're not seeing this if you're not acting on this that's not okay. Like it's actually not okay. We're not cool about it. You need to know that we're not cool about it. If you think that you're leading, you're representing, you're not representing us. They're not the values that you, that you want. And, and if there's a gap then, uh, and that you recognize that there is a, there's space to grow your skills, your knowledge, your awareness, Hey, let's work together. But if you're not ready for that, that's okay. That's okay too. But um, I think, we don't have time anymore with with this you know 22 kicking off um the decade of action whatever you want to call it we've got less than 10 years now um and so it, it happens it's happening you know you want to jump on board or, or or miss the boat totally um matt just one quick question for any of our listeners who um maybe haven't heard of the decade of action before could you tell us more about that yeah, so it's linked to the Sustainable Development Goals and, and the 2030 Agenda. So uh, I guess it's, it's more of a United Nations uh, in, initiative there. But for me, it's a powerful way of thinking about um, this time of transition. And, and basically what it means is that we've, we've got this moment in time to adapt and um, shift what we've been doing now into a way that lives in closer partnership with the the planet and addresses the things like we what you've been talking about around equality and and climate change all of those are interconnected but essentially we need to deliver those things you know by 2030 to stop you know this uh, irreversible change um that's happening uh, or this this rapid change that's happening so i guess it's a time of healing probably to come back to some words of wisdom um, from first nations elders it, you know it's a time of change but it's also a, a time of healing and, and reconnection and uh, in letting go of old ways that also create space for new growth and it's just like that fire cycle where it's actually part of a creative process so being willing to let go of the old that no longer service is actually part of the thing that opens up the potential for new opportunities. Totally. Now, I think that's a really wonderful note to end on. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, getting, getting started with 2022 and thinking we entered 2020, thinking that this would be the decade of action and um, things abruptly changed course quite quickly and all of a sudden we're two years into that decade of action. So I think, you know, those points you just shared um, around how we can create change and, you know, what we need to be focusing on now, I think is so poignant. Um, you know, we're two years in, eight years left. Here we go. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So we've already started. And I think that's the thing. It's already happening. We don't have to wait anymore. It's already, we just got to keep cracking on with it together and, um, and enjoy it as well. Like as much as it's going to be challenged, it's also going to be fun. So, yeah, looking forward to lots of more conversations through the Voices of Regen podcast, meeting lots more interesting people. We're probably going to be springing out and having conversations beyond Aotearoa in Australia into other countries and across other cultures to find those intersections that can give us little keys and insights into um, this time of change and the ways that everyone can practically uh, be involved. So uh, keep an eye out for, for more stories. 
but for now, good luck with kickstarting kick your year, getting into the rhythm. And uh, if there's opportunities to collaborate, we'd also love to hear from you. So thank you very much. And we'll talk soon.